The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Inspira podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Welcome to the Inspira podcast, hosted by your girl, me, Erica Mueller-Chen. I'm an international development specialist with over a decade of experience leveraging the amazing power of sport to promote peace and positive social impact. My career has allowed me to live in Europe, Southern Africa, and Latin America. In 2022, I accepted an offer for my dream job in sports diplomacy. And I also became an employee family member to a U.S. diplomat, a.k.a. an EFM. This podcast is all about inspiration and career advice. Each episode, I'll interview an inspirational global changemaker working in sport for development, social impact, or the diplomatic service. This series is perfect if you have interest in breaking into one of these sectors or you've already landed that dream role and are keen to learn from thought leaders. Enjoy today's episode and stay inspired. We're surrounded by so much uncertainty. We don't know what we're going to face. Who knew, for example, that the Ukraine-Russian war would affect Central Asia? Who knew that the coronavirus would affect us all? So it's always challenging to talk about these where we were before and why sport is important now more than ever. Welcome, friends. Today, we are here with special guest Samia Khatib, joining us, I believe, from Beirut, Lebanon, but she's always on the go. And she's used her background in psychology and her passion for sport to work in sport for development and peace. She has occupied multiple positions in the field, working as a coach, a master trainer, capacity developer, and curriculum developer. She speaks and is competent in English, French, and Arabic, and she's worked with GIZ as well as other organizations in Lebanon, Indonesia, Philippines, Morocco, Kyrgyzstan, and most recently, Tajikistan and Egypt. One thing I like to do before we get into the podcast interview is just mention with the audience why my guest inspires me because I've named this podcast Inspira. So not only are we talking about career advice, but hopefully a little bit of inspiration here and there. And Samia, what I really love about what I know about your journey, your specialties is your expertise in capacity building and a lot of work with coaches and teachers in their communities. And in my opinion, that's some of the most fun and meaningful work. And not only are you able to really multiply impact because you're doing train the trainer and capacity building where where they're going to take on that those initiatives and those learnings to others, but you yourself are also putting yourself in a position to learn from them. And the more locations, the more communities, the more organizations you work with, you really, I would imagine, are developing this great toolkit. So I, uh, I wanted to ask how your recent travel was. Actually, I wanted to start there because I would imagine your work was quite interesting the last couple of months, specifically in Tajikistan. Could you just tell us what you were doing there? 
Right. So as you said, my work is definitely more concentrated on the field. So that direct contact with instructors and coaches is always exciting. Um, so I went to Tajikistan a few weeks ago where uh, we worked with the GIZ and the Women's uh, Football Federation of Tajikistan on capacitating coaches to be able to use sport as a vector for health especially for the girls and women who live in rural areas in Tajikistan. Um, within the health um, spectrum, we're talking really about sexual and reproductive health, dental hygiene, general mental and physical health, uh, healthy nutrition, and so on and so forth. Um, so it was quite an exciting trip, especially that I don't speak any of the local languages, whether Russian or Tajik or Farsi. Thankfully, I had the translator. Um, which made some jokes funnier than most. Uh, a lot of sign language involved, but overall, it, it's always a good connection with participants that is established. Perhaps you could give us a, a brief overview of your career journey so far in sports and maybe highlight when you started to enter sport for development specifically. Well, it was quite a chance meeting, but also quite the, the trajectory that my career would take in some ways. Um, so as you mentioned, my background is in sports psychology. And sports psychology is not always only about optimal performance with athletes and so on. It's also about the well-being of the people that we work with. Um, so I thought, okay, that's a great insight, but I would not like to work in a hospital or have my own clinic and so on. Um, what happened is that I attended a training for inclusive sports and physical activity in Germany back in 2019. Mm -hmm. And from then on, I met a now colleague, a very esteemed colleague, who got me into the field of sport for development. But before that, I did have some experience with a local NGO in, uh, in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And I worked on conceptualizing a manual. I knew that this is the trajectory that I would like to continue with. So started back in 2019, had a few breaks, and then went on to work with the GIZ um, as a consultant for some time. And seeing how um, things progress from there, I was able to work in more than one country. Um, and here I am today. <laughs> and are you originally from Lebanon? Yes. I remember in, I think, our earlier conversation, you who mentioned the Lebanese are resilient people. Could you speak to what you meant by that? Sure. I mean, if you look back a bit at the history, um, it's been a country that's always been in turmoil. We've had our ups and downs. And I personally have been through war, through um, armed conflict. Um, a lot of instability, especially as well with the latest economic crisis, the COVID-19 crisis, the August 4th blast, among other things. Um, um, that and, of course, missing basic needs like electricity, water and having to, you know, um, find alternatives all the time is quite stressful. Um, with that being said, um, it never stopped me from being able to work or from being able to provide that capacity building to other people. And because I think I have been, or most Lebanese persons have been through all of this, they can share their own experience, not only on resilience, 
but some, some type of uh, self-repair that I'd like to, um, this is how I like to define it, where, okay, we have been through some hard things, some through some stressful situations, but this is, um, um, this is okay, and this is how we go through it um and overcome it with time and it always reminds me of that every time i get asked or i'm asking someone in an interview have you been in a difficult situation and what did you do to overcome it you're like your What's life a standard your question country. that yeah. makes no sense <laughs> oh so yeah um resilience is now a, a big word because um we are tired of being resilient it's been quite some time, and we we really just want a piece of uh, peace of mind mm -hmm. to be able to be in a more stable situation. Yeah, of course, of course, that's what anyone wants, right? Is that safety and security in their physical surroundings, and hopefully that exactly. helps their emotional well being. And I'm sure with your background in psychology, that's you know you can make tons of connections that that I can't even imagine. And I, I'm wondering if kind of that mindset or, or how your lived experiences have, have shaped you, how does that influence how you approach your work? I mean, I'm, I know that you travel to lots of different locations, working with different populations around a variety of topics. And usually these are really important topics, providing either resources or education or health access or supporting refugees, people with disabilities, the list goes on. Do you, are you able to kind of connect the dots or reflect or share how your own identity or how your own lived experiences perhaps have if you believe they have equipped you well to to do that work or maybe connect with people in, in more of a special way than others might be able to hmm. i never thought about it but i would say definitely because um when uh we personally come from um, not only a psychological background, but uh, a life of uh, needing to be, for example, trauma-informed or needing to be compassionate towards others who come to you in certain times. Um, it makes it easier to connect with people around the world because we all have our problems. Uh, they're a bit different, of course, but um, in trainings, I make sure that I create a safe space, mm -hmm. not only for them to get the right information, but to approach me or other trainers in case they need anything that is more personal or a bit more sensitive than the topics that we are discussing. I would love to hear any examples of, of your more recent work where you're doing that capacity building. Maybe you could speak to what problems you're trying to solve and how sport is allowing you or the community to try to solve those problems. I mean, the Olympic Games is mm. a huge uh, kind of example, but we don't have to look only at sport for development. We mm. can look at the anti-racism campaign of the Premier League. We can look at uh, the solidarity with Ukraine, for example, that has been shown again and again in football games. Um, so sport does have a big impact. Now, talking more specifically about projects, mm -hmm. um, I've worked with like topics like health, uh, gender equality, employability mainly, um, and we'll be working soon on violence prevention and so on. Mm -hmm. um, employability is a big subject that I worked with uh, in terms of um, capacitating the coach to be able to 
um, kind of through sport, uh, develop some competences that are needed in today's labor market. Um, that was in Morocco and in Kyrgyzstan as well. So quite different regions. Mm. But um, what we saw is that the youth lack these soft skills that uh, we don't learn explicitly at school or at university. Um, in addition to their technical skills, of course, and their access to the labor market. Um, and we saw that sport can be a great safe space for them not only to experiment, but also make errors and repair these errors to be able to gain these competences. And it has made an impact, uh, especially in Morocco, because the project there was longer, where we saw coaches from the Basketball Federation and Football Federation trying to teach these skills, not only in a classroom or through theatrical play, for example, but through uh, games based in sport. Um, so it was a good, um, nice impact to see. What are the different pros and cons you would say of being a, a master trainer or a curriculum developer or um, doing that, that capacity building that you've had the opportunity to do? As you said, it has its pros and cons. It's great to meet new people all the time. It's great to see different contexts all the time. Um, but it's quite challenging because I don't get to follow up or see that impact at the end mm -hmm. um, uh, of what the work that I or other trainers have done has amounted to. Um, whether it is uh, the ruptured connection with these trainers, for example, whether it's the language barrier, which I've recently also <laughs> um, experienced. It's quite hard to communicate, for example, with the coaches that I trained in Tajikistan or in Kyrgyzstan because they don't speak any English and I don't speak any Russian. And Google Translate is not much help when it comes to uh, translating technical or, um, you know, different things. So I feel that I cannot be uh, supportive as much as I would like to, uh, to these people, even after the training was done. Um, another con of it is, so projects, you know, come from fundraisers and from local NGOs and that are also affected by uncertainties and internal and external problems, as well as what is happening around us. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's never stable, um, and creates some challenges when planning and when implementing. Do you feel like you had a breakthrough moment in breaking into sport for development and peace or any, uh, I think you mentioned a person who's now a colleague kind of introduce it to you. Were there, were there some key moments to really entering the sector and specifically finding paid opportunities in it? Um, yeah, I did uh, find some challenges with that. So before finding that said colleague, mm -hmm. um, I tried to introduce sport for development in local NGOs in Lebanon okay. as um, as an addition, as some um, something that they can do on the side rather than it being included directly into their programs. Already it exists, but exists within uh, international organizations like Right to Play, um, like UNICEF that used to work in sport for development, but stopped. 
So there were some foundations there, but they were never democratized. This is how I saw it, at least. Um, and when I tried talking to certain representative of different NGOs, I saw that they already have had some programs. Some had capoeira, some had football, um, some had basketball and so on, but it was never structured. So it was there to provide, for example, mental health support. Uh, it was there to provide some leisure time for children and youth, but it was never structured in a way that I now know of. Um, so this is how, uh, this is why the training and meeting that certain colleague, and this is why networking is always super important, where the breakthrough happened, where I saw that there was already uh, a structure that was built by different NGOs, even if they are so different, they kind of look the same, but it depends on also how they are applied and where and when. So that was a breakthrough moment, definitely. And talking more about your experience in the field, do you mm -hmm. have some examples or stories you can share about some of the challenges that you've encountered with your work and any of the highlights or really memorable moments? Uh, memorable moments. Uh, let's start with the good ones. Sure. Um, <laughs> it's always... It's always, um, I don't know if it's a good moment or not, it's always sad to leave after a week or two of training um, because we're in a small bubble where everyone kind of understands each other and everyone kind of knows what their role is and how they do it. And, you know, we can share things. And I sit with coaches and so on if we speak the same language and we have some good fun and exchanges um so this is always a highlight the challenges uh sometimes the topics can be too sensitive for a certain context um again drawing back to my tajikistan experience because it was my most recent one um i held a session on puberty as it is in the context of health and I'm training 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old, and when I mentioned puberty, they all giggled. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm touching on a sensitive topic. <laughs> mm. I should approach that with, with care and consideration, but they were acting like teenagers. It was hilarious. <laughs> and I couldn't get completely my message across because there were these... Um, restrictions on talking about it or these uh, this shyness i would say in terms of what puberty is why do we talk about it and we had the game where they had to say okay is this statement true or false mm -hmm. and one of them was uh, for example hormones only affect the outside of the body mm -hmm. and i got some truths i got some false and i got some i don't know and one of the participants was like, I don't know. I'm like, does someone care to explain why this is false in, uh, in terms of statements? And no one would share out loud. They went to her and whispered in her ear why the statement was false. There's also a lot of misinformation, for example, about puberty. And trying to correct that is also a challenge sometimes. Now, content-wise, uh, this this is challenging. Logistic-wise, 
again, we're surrounded by so much uncertainty. We don't know what we're going to face most of the time. Who knew, for example, that the Ukraine-Russian war would affect Central Asia? Who knew that the coronavirus would affect us all so much and to that extent? So it's always challenging to talk about these, where we were before, how we are now, and why did it change so much and why sport is important more now, now more than ever. Quick break here with a special message from your host. This episode is being released in celebration of the United Nations recognized International Day of Sport for Development and Peace, which takes place annually on April 6th. Each year, champions of the sport for development sector use this day to raise awareness of the incredible work that individuals and organizations are leading across the globe to leverage the potential power of sport and play to drive tangible impact and positive social change. I hope that listeners, whether an enthusiast, a skeptic, or a novice in this space, that you find the conversations I facilitate on the Inspira podcast to be informative and inspirational. If you enjoy this podcast, you would be a rock star if you went ahead and gave it a five-star review with a complimentary written sentence or two on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast platform. Enjoy listening and happy April 6th, everybody. Thank you for those insights. And it's making me think how sport is really like a privilege and it's also really an escape for some people. And in that context, sometimes it just can't be available. Like when you think about these deep, deep conflicts that you mentioned, a war and then a pandemic, it did really unfortunately impact the sector. Thinking about some of your geographic experiences, I'd love to hear any insights or observations you've made about working across these different geographies. So we've got Lebanon, Indonesia, Philippines. You've already mentioned a little bit about Morocco and Tajikistan, and then you've got Kyrgyzstan and Egypt and maybe some others that I didn't name. How has your experience differed in those locations? Are there any um, similarities of how sport functions or differences of how sport functions and, and just how you approach those cultures? Anything you can share on that huge question, I'd love to know. <laughs> well, first, one of the perks is the food. Um, <laughs> that always helps. Uh, oh, it always helps. And um, being culturally open always helps, you know, um, seeing how different people eat their food, what they put <laughs> in it. That's so always exciting. Beside the food, sport is, uh, you know, a universal thing. Um, but as you said, we all approach it differently. Now, it's not that I chose uh, Middle East and North Africa and Central Asia. It kind of became, um, it came to the contract kind of very organically. Um, but in terms of sport, um, 
we have a long way to go in these regions, uh, especially in sports for development. Um, talking about Central Asia first, sport there is only for uh, participants to become professional, well-paid players. Um, here we have girls and women who are at a disadvantage because the focus is mainly on men. Um, and even the coaches that we train during that time are mainly focused on how to make high-level male athletes. It's very hard to come there as a foreigner and say, okay, we're trying to change to change your view of sport. So it's not only about professional sport. We're trying to include um, the, the SDGs. We're trying to include some development goals that we think are important for the country or for the region. And sometimes we, especially in Kyrgyzstan, for example, uh, we were met with uh, rejection of the idea. It's like, what am I doing here? I'm only here in sports so that I can um, improve my players and make them better athletes. And uh, it was one of the challenges of the workshop where we started with 30 participants and ended up with 15 because a lot of them were not interested in what we had to say in terms of sport for development and were focused more on development of sport. Mm -hmm. in, um, in the MENA region, so in the Middle East and North Africa, um, it's a bit more open to these development projects slash interventions because they are used to them and because sports, as you said, has always been a commodity or um, something that they enjoy uh, rather than it being only for professional needs or for professional purposes. Something that you do not find in uh, ex-Soviet uh, Union uh, countries. And it makes sense from a cultural perspective. Um, so in Morocco, in Egypt, and in Lebanon, sports or physical activity is for uh, participants to make friends, to go out, um, to have a medal or two, but nothing too professional so that the parents can be proud. Um, so it's a bit more laid back approach. And this is why it was more receptive to sport for development. Because you're entering a lot of these communities as an outsider, even the mm -hmm. ones where that are potentially Arabic speaking and you speak Arabic, how much time is spent finding those local partnerships or those local experts who can be involved in shaping and uh, making the content culturally relevant and also supporting you to make sure that there's that marriage between this holistic need and this intentional solution. Um, yeah, definitely. It's always me and a co-facilitator. Um, it can be challenging to be alone. Um, but uh, I mean, it's feasible. But as you said, a, a local expert is important. I'm not an expert on the context, even if I come from the same region. Mm. Um, and uh, we don't even speak, for example, the same dialect of Arabic. Um, <laughs> For example, between here in Morocco and between here in Egypt, there's quite some difference. Um, what we try to do is, so this is when we talk about capacity building. We try to capacitate these coaches so that they become the local experts that we need in further stages, whether it is from an organization point of view or from local partners. Um, local partners sometimes 
don't know what sportswear development is and kind of venture into it. Sometimes it turns out great and sometimes it's a learning process. It's always been like that and there's no shame in saying, okay, so we failed at that and that's no problem. We can improve the next time. Um, local experts are made through these trainings and then they get to also be master trainers if they continue with their um, uh, their learning process. Um, but what I like to do personally is set everything aside on the first day, get to know the participants, but also ask them what are the problems that you are facing so that I'm not giving a general session on health while they don't need it. Um, so it's always important to ask them, even if my co-facilitator or the people that I work with are not from the context itself. Um, it's about the participants and not about us. And it's not for me to impose any kind of view or any kind of problem. And what I want to be is beneficial for them. So it's always up to the participants to decide the course of the, the sessions and the content. Something that was extremely difficult in Kyrgyzstan because they have this culture of give us what you know and we we cannot tell you what we know because you're the expert here. You're coming from abroad to, to teach us. Like, okay, but you know the context more than I do. And they're like, okay, even if we know so, if we, uh, if we know the context, give us what you know and don't ask us what we think about the subject or don't ask us about how we do this thing. Give us what you know, <laughs> raw data. And I was quite shocked because I've never had that before. People usually love to share where they're from, what they do, how they solve problems. And um, again, if they're the experts on the context, it's best better to ask them all the time. How do you think that you became skilled in this function of sport for development? In terms of what skills were needed, I, I have practiced sports throughout my life, but I never done anything professionally. So I don't come from a background where I know the rules of all the sports, where, um, you know, I'm on the technical side. I don't know what goes in football trainings or basketball trainings and so on. I like it for the sheer fun of it. Um, and to be honest, after 2019, I, st I stopped practicing completely. And I know a lot of colleagues that work in sport for development that are not that sporty. Um, one doesn't have to be an athlete or someone who is so into sports to be in sport for development. Now, in terms of soft skills or more, um, not academic skills, but technical skills when it comes to S4D, I find this um, opportunity and this field of work um, and me being on the field quite suitable because I found that I have a knack in um adult education rather than child education. Um, I saw myself conveying information more to adults than to children. Um, and uh, I saw myself really knowing how to translate the information that I know into the context that I work with, whether it's simplifying it, making it more academic, uh, and depends on the demands or the needs that uh, need to be met. So I find I, I found that I had no problem with that at all. And I think this is why my success has been um, repeated over and over 
I'm not blowing my own horn, but um, it's part of it where I some coaches cannot, for example, fathom the idea to work with adults and they love their work with children. Mm-hmm. And it's really based on a personal preference. Now, when it comes to how can people be involved? Well, first of all, volunteering, it's for free. I know it's not always suitable to our needs, but it's extremely important. Volunteering opens the door to many positions on the field and outside of the field. And it depends on whether a person is more document slash sitting alone oriented to be able to conceptualize something, budget a certain project, work on uh, games uh, and so on, rather than being on the field and coaching these two youth and children. Um, There are a lot of um, opportunities. I mean, there are a lot more now than there were a few years back. Um, because we have the international platform on sport and development, sportandev.com, the GIZ and the German Sports University uh, are working also on the learning lab, on the toolkit that is available to everyone. There are a lot of resources that you have put in your thread and hopefully will be published soon as well. Um, There are more opportunities and more, um, uh, if you want, needs technical or on the field that are now being pronounced more than a few years ago. So for anyone who is interested in that kind of work, uh, do not only base your expectations on the job that you would find, but also take any opportunity to learn about the approach, about the different type of S4D approaches and um, go to the forums, whether they're online or in person, Try to get in contact with the people in the sport for development field. They're quite nice, as you can see, <laughs> um, uh, like Erica here. And um, it's a small field where technically everyone knows anyone, everyone, but it doesn't mean that we've all worked together. Um, so it, it's quite a um, closely knit community and more opportunities are coming, or this is how I see it at least. Mm, I'm loving those insights. Thank you. I, I know I mentioned I'm all about career advice and these tips. That was an excellent, excellent response. So I hope anyone listening can rewind a couple of minutes and, and listen to that over. In retrospect, kind of thinking back on your career in sport for development and peace, is there anything you wish you would have known before entering the sector or anything you wish you would have done differently? Um. Well, I talked about what to do if one wants to go into the field. Mm -hmm. And because there are more opportunities, there are actually now academic programs that allow students to enter the field of sport for development. There are two programs, one at the University of Cologne in Germany and another big one in South Africa at uh, the University of um, I don't want to give any incorrect information, mm-hmm. but I think we can put that in the description later. Yeah. Um, so there are now academic specialties that lead people to sport for development. Um, so I wish this was, uh, I knew of it before. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't like my sports psychology <laughs> background, but it would have been um, a choice at least. Um, but it's never too late. 
and uh, education, you know, is never ending. Um, so if anyone feels like joining any of these programs, um, the information is online. Um, and also hopefully um, other universities would be able to offer at least if not a full program, but some subjects or a diploma or anything like that so that we can really capacitate people mm -hmm. in the field. Um, that and of course how um, how unstructured the field is. You know, we have structure, structure sorry, for each NGO and for each, each organization, but how I do S4D is very different from the Caribbean's S4D. Um, how S4D is done in the Caribbean is very different from how it is done in the US. So um, it's good to have this very open-minded thinking and not be very stuck in also the academic and monitoring and evaluation and so on um, and see how different programs have different impacts that are relevant to each context that we work with. You were part of the Youth Ambassador Program for Peace and Sport back in 2019. They're one of the major mm -hmm. players in this space. And we also didn't mention that you have a background in martial arts. And that, as well as your competence in Arabic, allowed you to be recruited into the sport for development uh, space. So how um, would you say that you... Um, have found your paid opportunities. I know you mentioned having some contract work. Mm -hmm. Are there websites where those opportunities are collated and uh, listservs where it's emailed out? Or is it really like you, you've got to keep your eye on a bunch of different things or someone needs to know you and think of you and say, okay, Sam, I, I've got an opportunity for you. Do you have any tips on, on the types of opportunities that you've secured and how other people could learn about when those are available mm -hmm. um i mean everything that you mentioned is a part of getting those opportunities whether it's the, con the personal connections the uh, word of mouth um the search and also uh, newsletters and following up with the field itself um like in any job market really um now we have the sport and death international platform where a lot of jobs are posted. A lot of jobs are there weekly, daily. Um, and it's important because they're in very different geographical areas. Um, so people can find what suits them, uh, how they uh, respond to the needs of the call um, and so on. So this is one way. LinkedIn is a huge factor. I always stress it. It's not popular in some regions, but in the Western countries, it's quite popular. So uh, LinkedIn really creates that, oh, I know this person and I know what they do. So let me tell them about this opportunity that can help them with their career or anything that's posted on there, really. It doesn't have to be an active search. Um, also looking at the big actors of sport for development at the website. For example, Peace and Sport only uh, puts their job opportunities on their website. Um, so this is like a, an example. So really going to these big actors and seeing if they're offering anything. Sometimes they're offering, for example, the forum will be um, in, in place on November 30th and December 1. It's the annual forum that is um, done in Monaco uh, every year. Uh, it was halted by COVID. 
Um, but now we have the opportunity to have that again in person. They're asking for volunteers to go and do the logistic stuff to, to assist with different things. And with that, they get entrance to the forum um, as content and people. Um, so it's always important to look for these opportunities under specific actors rather than only in general. Um, also establish a good network. Again, something that we've said. And if you are volunteering, this is, I, this is why I started with volunteering. If you are volunteering, you have the opportunity to network not only with the people in the organization that you work with, but with local partners and the people um, that are also involved in the process. And by word of mouth, this can get you the opportunities that you might think are suitable for you. I understand you recently participated in a boot camp about sport, disability, and inclusion. I'm wondering what insights you gained from that experience. Right. Um, when we talk about sport, we rarely talk about inclusion, and especially inclusion of people with disabilities or any minorities or slash um, marginalized communities. And when we talk about disability, we talk as able-bodied people about disability, like we're experts on the, on the subject. And it's quite um, um, a pink-colored view of what people with disability need, how they need us to talk to them, how they, they need for us to identify them, what pronouns to use, what words to use exactly. And um, we come here and we're like, okay, we're gonna make this project inclusive. But then we design something that's that does inclusion by design because we did not ask the people who are involved in the project or who are the stakeholders. And it comes from uh, a good intention, but then we still exclude some people by design. Um, so this is one of the great insights that I got that when designing something, it's really good to include the people who are gonna be benefiting or taking, okay, I don't like the word benefiting really, who are taking away something from this project. And with inclusion in sport, we still have a super long way to go, whether it's the most developed countries or the countries who are, you know, low income countries or developing countries, we still have a really long way to go. Whether it's including people with disabilities in our management and our offices and in our staff to actually engaging with people with disabilities on the field within sport, whether they are fans and whether they are players or just, uh, you know, um, uh, doing sports for leisure and for well-being. So this is what I kind of took from there, from that, um, from that boot camp. And in terms of new things that are out and about in disability sport, um, there were a lot of um, sport tech uh, companies, startups that were there. I can mention maybe um, a few ones. Uh, I learned something uh, new, uh, a cold uh, sport, sorry, called chukbol, which is a low injury sport that's quite inclusive, that can be really used for development goals. Uh, I also learned more about uh, Accessorcise, which is a new app that is rolling out in the UK and soon in the US and uh, a bit further uh, down the timeline, maybe all over the world, where it's fitness and um, well-being for people with disabilities, and it depends on different impairments that they have and exercises that can do it that they can do. Um, I also learned that there is uh, a board for people with visual impairments, 
for fans who love football. And it's a board uh, done by Field of Vision where there's a ring that moves with the ball uh, so that they can have a full fan experience at the football uh, stadium. So a lot of interesting things that are going on, but things that we don't hear about until we meet the people that are behind them. Great. Thanks so much for sharing. And I can just put a plug in for a few inclusion experts that I've met. One is Eli Wolf out of Brown University. Another is Anna Paula out of University of Maryland. And then two folks that I've had the chance to interview for the podcast include Gabrielle Mayer and Sarah Hillier. And I would say all four of those people, at least I've had the opportunity to work with. So I have really good things to say about them and their disability experts, folks with and without disabilities, which as you mentioned, is is the reality that we're in, but always extremely important to listen to the voices who have the lived experience, which in this case are, are folks with disabilities. Now that we know more about our guest's career journey, the rest of our conversation will allow us to have some fun and get to know our guest on a personal level through some rapid fire questions. We'll then start to wrap up with pointed questions focused on advice and how our listeners can transform interest into action. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Give me your favorite food. Uh, well, of course, Lebanese food is at the top of my list. Um, I do like a good um, grilled chicken and garlic, but also some cooked things. It's, this is a very difficult question. Can we go back to us for the <laughs> hummus is a, is a Lebanese staple, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, for Morocco, it's a good couscous on Friday. Um, oh, you've got a day and, specific. Uh... I like it. <laughs> the thing is, couscous is only available ah, okay. on Fridays. Okay. This is why I picked it. <laughs> In Tajikistan, I had a national dish, which was pilaf. So that was, rice is always a good a good choice of meal. Are there any other like major interests that you have in your life other than sport and travel? And then obviously food, like let's just put that aside for now. <laughs> uh, films. Um, so I like watching comedy films, even if they're, bad or a bit <laughs> cringy um i enjoy um if you want uh, it's a longitudinal taste so from the 80s up until now there are some good ones and some bad ones but i enjoy all of them <laughs> are there any favorite films that you can share with us i will go with the quite uh, popular cheesy cringy ones like uh, dude where's my car uh as well as i i sense that you're thinking about american yeah. movies I, I thought we were getting you know super cultural and international staying in like samia's world no, but you're like no, no the cringy ones like the country that you're from <laughs> but there are a lot of movies that kind of shaped our mm. our teenagehood like um mean girls and white chicks yeah, and yeah. you know those very american okay. movies that yeah, yeah. we we had the chance to, to watch <laughs> interesting yes yeah, yeah. things 
like sport are also universal. So I guess <laughs> yeah. there we go. There we go. How did you get into martial arts? So I did a lot of things during that time. I was quite uh, energetic uh, person. I was doing basketball at the same time and so on. And I started with um, karate when I was quite young um, as a form of self-expression. I'm not very artsy. Um, so karate was this very structured place where I knew what to do. So I found my place there. Um, going on into more uh, specific or martial arts that are different. Mm. Um, I practiced judo when I was in school. It was a bit more uh, physical and rough than a general karate kata, uh, um, where you just show it's not physical fighting. Um, and then to try to merge all of these, because I like the sense of structure and discipline that they provide. Um, I moved on to mixed martial arts, which is a bit less structured, a bit less disciplined, but still provided me with that self-defense plus uh, focus on movements rather than, it's not about the violence, it was never about the violence, um, it's about the focus on the movements and the ability to execute them as they should be done. Any region or country specific advice say for somebody in Lebanon or the Middle East who wants to break into sport for development and peace well know where you want to be do you want to be in the office or would you like to be on the field would you like to be a coach or would you like like with youth with adults would you like to be in the back office it depends on the needs of every person NGO work in the Middle East is quite easy to access. And maybe if you go into an organization that you find suitable and then think that they have an opportunity in sport, that could be a good pathway. But context specific, language is your forte in terms of English, Arabic, and French, because it's quite a diverse region. But also knowing uh, culturally what it means and what topics can be addressed and what can't and in terms of like more um, tangible advice look out for volunteering opportunities if you are abroad uh, these are mainly open for students who are studying whether in the US or Europe and also look out for the directory for the civil uh, society for Lebanon, Dalil Madani, and each country kind of has its own resources about that. And of course, the big actors usually post about local and regional opportunities on their website. So keep an eye on that as well. Are there any really specific skills that you think somebody coming into the sport for development and peace sector mm -hmm. should have this skill uh, or develop it in order to be successful or competitive in finding work in the sector? Definitely communication as sport for development is, is, a, is a field based on that. Knowing how to work in teams because workers in the field are never alone. We have to care for the people around us and their needs. Also have a lot of trust and self-confidence. Put your foot out there, try to see who says yes. Even if you're rejected, other people will say yes, but put yourself out there. 
how can our audience support you or your work moving forward? I mean, I can, I hope I can support them when I can as well. Um, but it's always about networking. Why are we doing this? You know, it's about knowing who the actors are, who are the people that are working in this field, what are their experiences? And if anyone can find value in my experience, and if I listen to other podcasts as well, and I find value in their experience, I would love to have them on my team. Sam, my final question that I love to ask all of my amazing guests and that you gave me permission to invite you to answer in English and Arabic is who or what inspires you? In this boot camp, I met someone called Myron and Myron has a disability that keeps him from having coordinated movements and so on. And his father had this vision that he wants his son to actually participate in sports. And this went from an individual project to a community project to a Netherlands-based program and um, you know team and center for people with disabilities to engage in sport. And I don't use inspiring because we talk a lot about how people with disabilities are inspiring and so on. It's it's just that they're doing what they need to do to be able to have a full fulfilling life generally. And um, the center that I saw, it's called Only Friends. It's amazing what they do in terms of support. Also programs for people with obesity, with disabilities, the elderly, where they can also generate income in the center, come for community meetings. This is something that we don't see everywhere and how inclusive it is, I would say is inspiring so that we can follow in, the, in these footsteps. Awesome. Well, any final words in Arabic? رياضة كتير مهمة إن كان لإلنا كأفراد أو كمجتمعات بس نعرف قد هي فيها قوة وقد فينا نستعملها كرمال صالح المجتمعات والأفراد فينا نحن نستعملها على الصعيد الشخصي على الصعيد المجتمعي ونقدر من خلالها نتعلم كتير إن كان للأشخاص اللي عندهم إعاقة للأشخاص اللي مهمشين أو بس لنتعلم مهارات حياتية عامة لنقدر لنقدر نستعملها بالحياة اليومية so basically what I tried to say was um, sports is really important for us as individuals, but also as communities. And once we re realize its power, we can use it for our communities, for us and as individuals, whether it's to include people with disabilities, whether it's to uh, include marginalized uh, communities, as well as learn basic life skills that we can then transfer to everyday life. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Inspira podcast with Erica Mueller Chen. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and found it useful. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources. Specifically, my link tree is there with tons of awesome information. Feel inspired to take action today? I've got three action steps you can take right now because you know your girl likes calls to action and the number three. So here goes. Number one. Sign up for my mailing list by adding your email address. Number two, check out my global resource hub and send it to someone in the sector who may be interested. Number three, buy me a coffee. Or if you know me, this will actually be a hot cocoa. Your support will help make sure this passion project prospers. All of these links are available by visiting my link tree. 
Until next time, stay inspired. Money.